0: Hey, this is Dave Harkins. Welcome to the Working Life Project. My guest, Lou Elman, was making licensed guitar straps as a side hustle and couldn't find an affordable tool to help him track royalties and manage his payments to licensors. After a little research, he identified what he believed was a market opportunity, and without any software coding experience, he bootstrapped Royalty Zone, an online software-as-a-service tool to help both licensors and licensees track and manage their royalties. It wasn't long before Lou quit his day job and focused solely on developing and growing the company. Lou sold Royalty Zone a few years ago but continues as its CEO. Lou and I met several years ago when I was running the licensing department at the Boy Scouts of America and Lou was just getting Royalty Zone off the ground. I spoke with Lou in June 2018 from his home in Austin, Texas for my graduate work and entrepreneurship. Lou Ellman, welcome to The Working Life Project. I would like to start by giving listeners a better understanding of what Royalty Zone is. I think of it as a tool to help licensees and licensors manage their contracts and royalty responsibilities. Would that be a good description?
1: Sure, that's a good way to describe it. And actually, over the years, it's really morphed into a tool for managing all aspects of brand licensing compliance. Uh, when we started, we fo- our focus was on making royalty reporting, which is a very manual and cumbersome process, as easy as it could be. And that's where I came up with the name Royalty Zone. But as the years went by, uh, we got more and more involved in contract management, rights management, uh, product uh, submissions and approvals, digital asset sharing, manufacturer management—all these moving pieces of the relationship between licensor and licensee. So, I like to refer to Royalty Zone as a brand licensing automation suite of tools that encompasses all of those,
0: all of those criteria. So, how did you come up with the idea for Royalty Zone?
1: Well, you know, my story is kind of funny. I, I started in 2015, or not 2015, 2005, uh, uh, a small hobby business. It was the first company that I ever started, and I became a licensee uh, for college college officially licensed college merchandise. And uh, I was making and selling guitar straps, guitar picks and drumsticks with college logos. And I started with just one school and one product. And then I grew that to about 20 schools with four different SKUs each. And as I was growing uh, that business, I realized how difficult it was to manage this relationship between licensee and licensor. And when I looked for software in the marketplace, uh, to help me manage my own business, I didn't really find what I was looking for. Everything was very expensive, wasn't web based, wasn't SaaS. Uh, so I decided to uh, make the leap and start a software company. Uh, so, really, Royalty Zone was born out of my own needs. And luckily enough, there were lots of other companies that felt the same way uh, about the existing tools as I did.
0: How did you balance your existing business, which was a side hustle, right, with the new enterprise you wanted to build with Royalty Zone? How did you find time to do it all?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It took a while. Uh, for, for a good period of time, I was trying to do both. And then it became really clear, uh, maybe about a year after uh, that, that it just wasn't going to work. And I had a full-time job uh, as well. Uh, there's just no way, there's not enough hours in the day to devote yourself to all these different projects. So uh, the first thing that I did was I quit my day job and then I was focused entirely on being an entrepreneur, uh, which was scary and challenging and fun and all those things, sometimes all those things in the same half hour period. Uh, and I, I really put most of my focus and attention on uh, Royalty Zone. And I think it was about a year after I got serious about Royalty Zone that I was able to sell uh, the, the product business, the guitar strap business. Uh, to some folks
0: here in Austin and focus all my energy on Royalty Zone. The biggest challenge a startup founder faces is finding a customer base. How challenging was it for you to find customers as you were trying to get Royalty Zone off the ground?
1: Yeah, it was more challenges than successes. I'll tell you what, you know, the interesting thing, I, it, looking back, it, it's really a marvel that I was successful with royalty zone because when when I started royalty zone, I was virtually unknown in the licensing industry. No one knew who I was. Uh, I had uncovered this pain point, but I really only uncovered it from one perspective, which was my relationship as a licensee for with the CLC collegiate licensing company. So I only really knew about how the CLC did licensing. Um, and, you know, I also bootstrapped the business, so I didn't have a lot of a lot of funding. Uh, so the way, the, the challenge was immediately, how do I uh, prove myself? How do I get the attention of established licensors in this business? And how do I convince people to start using the software? And it took about a year and a half from the time that we started, you know, really writing code, on the product until we had, you know, a handful of, of early adopters as as I'll call them. And the biggest advantage that I had going into Realty Zone was that my entire career prior to starting my own company uh, was in enterprise sales. So the one thing that I knew how to do really well was uh, you know talk about value, identify prospects, narrow down who my ideal prospects are and what my target market is get their attention, get meetings, and then once I was engaged with someone, navigate a sales cycle, and close the deal. That's really a luxury for a small startup to have someone uh, uh, like that on, on the team. Most start- startup founders are technologists. They have an idea. They're writing the code. I didn't write any of the code. I hired a guy right, right out of the gates to write the code. So I was able to focus on business and sales as well as supervising and managing the product development. But you know, it was one challenge after another. Um, But really, my ability to get in there and and work some sales cycles and close some deals was, was the secret to success.
0: So it sounds like with your sales background, maybe you were able to get a few customers interested and committed early in the business development cycle. How important was that to your early growth? You know, it's funny because I
1: talk about my three-step business plan. I, you know, Anytime someone asks me to speak uh, about Royalty Zone, I always talk about this. And step one is get a customer. Step two is make that customer ridiculously happy. And then step three is repeat. So my whole focus was on providing value, getting a customer, and then building a referenceable customer base. Um, so... Once we had a handful of customers, that's when the fun really began because we were were getting tons of feedback, tons of suggestions on how to make the product better. And now we switch focus from, okay, what do we think people want and and what do we think people need to here's what – Real customers are telling us is going to help them in their, in their average day. And that's what we started to do. I think one of our big keys to success was being very responsive back then to our customers needs. We were able to build features very quickly. You know, we were uh, on a nimble technology stack so we could uh, listen to someone's um, ideas and quickly turn those into requirements and then features within the product. And that's what we did. So once we had a handful of customers, we got all these great suggestions for additional features, We continued to build, continued to market and sell the product, which then started to mushroom. Now, it was kind of a slow go. Really, the first three years of Royalty Zone were what I'd call um, the early days where building the company to a sustainable uh, revenue rate, building it to where I could actually pay myself a, a, a real uh, uh, you know, living wage, uh, that did not happen overnight. So I was paying my employees real wages so that I could attract uh, and keep them, but I was always the last one to, to get paid. And after, after about three years, that's when uh, we kind of got into a nice growth rate, really between, I guess, the third. So just a little bit of, of background, the company was founded – in 2007, and then was acquired uh, by a company called FilmTrack in 2016. So if you look at kind of graphing that, the first three years was very slow growth, you know, maybe a handful of new customers each year, and then between year three And let's just call it year eight, we got that hockey stick growth where we're adding, you know, 15, 20 customers every year. And that's when we started to get into some of the big revenue deals. I think one of the mistakes that I made looking back was I underpriced the product from the beginning. So as I was closing deals, it wasn't really moving the needle. You know, I wasn't even able to afford to hire a new developer. I would close like an industry name uh, relationship and i couldn't even hire another developer based on the revenue so i started to raise those raise the prices i would just whenever someone would ask i'd be at the trade show i would just kind of double it before i would go to every trade show i just double the price until i got to a point where someone says "Whoa, that's crazy we're not paying that and that's when i knew where the right price was
0: it seems like it took you a while to get that pricing model figured out true at the time it took you to figure that out concern you any i mean it's a little scary to be spending money to develop a product when when you don't know if you can even find a profitable price point
1: true i also think i underestimated uh the effort it it is to sell a product like this. It's a, you know, I've sold a lot of different software products. I thought this one might be a fast sales cycle, but in many cases it was a year plus sales cycle. And back, you know, back then I'm selling it for whatever, six, 12 K a year for a year long sales cycle. That's just doesn't add up. I also thought, naively that I was solving this problem for the whole industry and that this was going to be a, essentially a marketplace for reporting royalties and that I was going to have hundreds and hundreds of customers. Uh, that just didn't happen. And, and nobody's been able to crack that, that nut. It's still fragmented. You know, I have a few competitors Everyone kind of uses either their own system or one of my system or a competitive system, but no one's been able to normalize what royalty reporting looks like in the trademark licensing space and that was really my first goal was hey let's let's make something that everybody can use and then it'll just integrate with everybody's contract management systems and that that didn't happen and and there just wasn't a market for that
0: so why do you think there's so much fragmentation in this market?
1: Well, you know there's a lot of I have a lot of theories on that uh uh, when I started believe it or not because this was already 2006 2007 there was an extreme aversion to technology in this business. You know, there was not a lot of folks doing anything. They were just using spreadsheets and email to manage uh, their compliance and their royalty reporting and even their product approvals. And the Internet was already established as a business. You know, Salesforce was well on its way, uh, and the Internet and SaaS products were already established. But the industry that you and I were in and that I chose to sell to was, was behind you know, probably five years behind. Um, So I had the technology hurdle. Uh, I had – then the other hurdle was everybody thinks they're doing it uniquely. And when you look at it, maybe there's 10% that they're doing differently, but when it comes to royalty reporting, everybody's doing the same thing. Uh, But they're doing it in a a data format that does not – is not com, uh, consistent across the industry. They're collecting the same kind of data. They're just collecting it in a slightly different way. And then there's also the, the fear that, uh, you know, this is important data to me. I want to keep it within my four walls. You know, what we're doing now has always worked. The licensees are sending us checks. We're getting paid. Um, so there's a couple different reasons why still in 2018 uh, there's no central centralized system, or even a standard data format for, for this type of uh, business relationship.
0: A lot of founders noodle around in the garage or a basement. You've heard those stories. hmm Trying to build the first prototype to pitch the customers. You mentioned earlier that you hired someone to do the coding for you. Did you do any of your own coding at the very beginning while you were creating the concept? I have
1: no skills in, in writing code, and nor do, nor do I want to learn them. it's i I actually have a funny story about that in the very when when this was just an idea and uh i had many sketches of the ui and then i kind of translate that into a powerpoint mock-up so uh I, I then you have this mock-up that I presented to some folks. I, I went to the uh, to the uh, licensing expo in Javits, which is the big industry trade show, and I just walked around with my PowerPoint, and I showed it to enough people that, that said, hey, that looks pretty good. We'd be in, interested in that. that. That's how I kind of convinced myself to really take the leap and go for this. That was my market research, if you will. So now it's time to actually code this thing up. And I went to the bookstore and I pulled a book off the shelf, uh, Ruby on Rails, which is what we wrote it on a book. And I opened it up just to the middle and I took one look at the page and I go, there's no way I'm learning how to do this. And I just put the book back on the shelf and started interviewing, started interviewing developers. And I'm glad that that's how that went down because as much time as I had to spend, on on royalty Zone, uh, if I had to write the code too, there just there just would not have been a possibility to to have a success
0: story. I would think some entrepreneurs would be concerned about hiring someone to code a software project, especially a prototype, for fear that that person might steal the idea or inadvertently share too much about the project with someone. Who might overhear and have deeper pockets. Mm-hmm. What were some of the concerns and challenges you had about hiring a developer? Yep.
1: Now, the challenge then became, how do I find and hire a developer, not really knowing what a good developer looks like and sounds like and uh you know that's i started to reach out to my network here in austin and i got a few recommendations for the same person and that's the person that i ultimately hired and he was with me for you know almost almost 10 years
0: given you were in startup mode what made you choose to add the expense of a staffer versus uh, using an outsourced development firm either in the u.s or offshore
1: Uh, Well, over the years, when Realty Zone was, you know, before I I sold it, we tried all the different models. You know, we always had uh, this guy here in Austin who was kind of our main uh, developer, Um, but then we hired some other folks in Austin we did some uh, near-shore. We, we had developers in, in Mexico and Costa Rica. We had developers in the Ukraine. We had developers in India. We tried managing themselves. We tried uh, hiring a development manager, and we tried uh, using uh, an outsourced development firm, which is the model we, uh, that I was using at the end when I acquired the company, and by far the most expensive of all of those approaches. And, you know, what I learned from my journey is what I'm good, like you said, you got to focus on your strengths. And I learned what I'm good at and what I'm not so good at. And one of my, one of the biggest challenges and, and burdens for me was managing the dev team and managing the, the product roadmap. It, it, it was just kind of a nightmare for me. It's something that I'd never done before. My whole career was in sales. You know, I have a technical background, but not in, in, in computer science. Uh, so that was always a challenge for us. And even when we were paying big bucks to a, a you know a big reputable firm, it was still uh, a bit of a nightmare. And then, if you fast forward to post acquisition, where now. We plug our processes into a team that has the proper structure, you know, a product manager, a DevOps guy, you know, everything you need. It's so much better now where I can just say, hey, here's what the customer wants. Here's the requirements. And they feed back to me, okay, here's our understanding of the requirements. And then we work it into our roadmap and and everything works works as planned. So I struggled with product development throughout the whole uh, history of, of, of royalty zone.
0: I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with figuring out the product roadmap in the startup phase. There's always this scramble to figure out where to go next. And I think there's a temptation to tweak the product frequently in order to find the highest paying market. Did you encounter this as you were building out royalty zone? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we made mistakes. I think the the biggest mistake that I made as the product owner uh, was too many quick pivots let's do this you know at one point i forget how many years in four years in i got engaged with this company in uh, miami that was looking for a music solution and all of a sudden we have this thing called rz tunes that we're working on right which is a completely different vertical completely different set of requirements with some overlap to the trademark licensing space and now we only have at the time maybe two three developers now we're focusing so much we're energy on this product that we don't even know if anybody's going to buy. And guess what? It turns out the prospect that we were kind of building it for didn't even buy it. So we had a couple of those let's leap, you know, before we look moments that I I think in hindsight are, are big time learning experiences.
0: What's the best way to stay on track with your vision when the revenue from your expected market isn't where you thought it would be? I mean, how do you keep the focus?
1: Well, in my case, it's just, It's just, you know, you live and you learn. Every time I went through that, I learned how to handle it better. If I had – and if you remember, Royalty Zone was bootstrapped. And uh, the way I funded the company, I was almost like my own angel uh, investor. I put a pile of money into it at the beginning. Uh, and then I never put any more money in and we just were able to grow the company uh, on revenue. But what that meant is is that I couldn't always hire as many people as, as, as necessary and I was doing jobs that I probably shouldn't have such as the product manager job. There was no one in the organization to say to me, hey, let's rethink this. Maybe that's not a good idea. We're already too busy just trying to satisfy the needs for this product. Let's not run into another product. You know, The developers aren't going to push back. They want to work on cool new stuff. So you really either need to have someone on the staff or just have that ability within yourself. And that's something, in my case, I learned over the years. And you make enough of those mistakes, you learn not to do it again.
0: Finding the right market for the product from the outset is key, I think. So if a founder misjudges his or her market, there's always that pressure to, to find one hook in the product or service that's going to make the cash register ring. I think this causes a lot of founders to pivot their business direction too frequently in search of some market, any market really, true. that will buy the product that will help pay the rent and keep the lights on. It's a hard place to be for an entrepreneur, I think.
1: It's, it's true. It, it is hard in and- again, as a hindsight lesson, you know, in the beginning we were trying to be many things. We, you know, we were in, a couple different verticals in addition to trademark licensing, which ultimately became the vertical that we focused a hundred percent of our energy on. We were also chasing this uh, technology commercialization vertical. And I was going to all those trade shows and meeting with all these, uh, you know, university tech transfer offices at the same time as I was trying to penetrate the trade, trademark licensing space. And after. A few years, I decided, and we had some customers too. In fact, some of the first customers were the tech transfer offices and not the trademark licensors. Um, but after a few years, I just realized there's just not enough people. There's not enough time. We have to pick a, a vertical and, and, and go after it and dominate it. And then we can look at moving into other verticals. And that is a tricky thing for entrepreneurs. You know, I've started mentoring and, and advising uh, companies here in Austin and just the other day I met with a company that was trying to be you know the answer to to many different solutions and my advice to them was pick pick one and go for it and own it and dominate it and then you can start looking at uh, some other verticals.
0: Implementing new technology in a company is difficult there's always those in the company who are resistant because it's not the tool that they're most comfortable using so if you're the person pulling royalty reports from a system using, say, SaaS, and I tell you SAS is going away, you're probably gonna fight that. But it's not about the tool, is it? I mean, it's about the user's knowledge and understanding of the data and information that can be accessed with the tool. Right. So when it comes to technology, particularly in a space like royalty management where there's no standard and everyone is using their favorite tool, how do you position the offering in a way that resonates with the prospect and overcomes their desire, to hang on to those old systems. Isn't it hard to sell such a product to a market that might not see a need for change?
1: Yeah. Again, because of my sales experience, I always focus on value. That's the key. You know, throughout my sales career, I've always focused on value to the prospect. And so even though we had a little bit of that where we couldn't, we didn't know which vertical to play in and we were just building as many features as we could, I always steered the messaging towards value rather than speeds and feeds and, oh, this is the greatest because it's a SaaS, you know, it was the customer doesn't, especially in the industry you and I were in. They don't. They don't care that it's SaaS. They care that it's easy to use. It's going to help them uh, save time during their day and ultimately get more money in the door um, by fixing and eliminating errors. And the rest of that, they don't care about. So, and, and that's the thing I see, like you said, in, in 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 startups, especially if they're founded by technologists, is you know they're more concerned about the product and the technology rather than how does this help someone solve a problem that's so important to them that they're willing to pay money for a solution to
0: that problem. With those long sales cycles, the pivots and the time it took you to figure out the pricing model, most entrepreneurs would have failed in those first three years. How were you able to manage those financial ups and downs in those early years? Did you ever feel like throwing in the towel and just walking away?
1: It's a good question. You know, I I was fortunate for two reasons. Uh, You know, I wasn't paying myself from royalty zone, but I still had my guitar strap business, which, you know, generated a little bit of revenue. And I also am a musician. At the time, I was playing in a, a band that was getting corporate gigs and winning gigs, so I was actually making a little bit of money playing guitar, which is the only time in my life that I've actually eaten (laughs) from playing the guitar, Uh, so I had that going, and then, you know, I also had been, you know, I was in enterprise sales for many years, so I had, you know, some money saved up, and so I was never really worried about money. What I was worried about was, is this the right thing to be spending my time on, you know, is there a business here, and, you know, I kept setting milestones for myself, yearly milestones, and, you know, the big, I guess, really the big, hurdle that I first got over was, number one, finding uh, early adopters like yourself and starting to work with real customers. That was hurdle number one. And once that happened, I'm like, okay, if these types of companies are able to use it and get value out of it, I don't see why many others similar to them shouldn't. And then in the at the end of the second year, we... I started partnering, and that's another thing that I I preach uh, to to, uh, uh, the companies that I chat with and advise. We started partnering with synergistic companies in our space, and all of a sudden, we're getting into the door on a silver platter, uh, and we closed a deal at the end of the second year where, and this was their idea, not mine, because remember, SaaS is a uh, monthly subscription, uh, you know, pay every month. Well, this company wanted to do a five-year uh, pay in advance deal and they did and i got a big check which i was able to pay myself back the loan that i'd made to the company and now all of a sudden i have money in the bank account i can think about hiring more developers we have a big marquee client and now we have these these great partnerships and that's one of the things that really uh put us uh you know on the path to success and the other thing that i noticed to answer your, your question about did i ever feel like throwing in the towel is in the early days, I would go to as many networking events as I could, mostly in Austin. And, you know, the the problem with that is I had no prospects and I I still don't. There's like nobody that I can sell royalty zone to in Austin, Texas. But I met a lot of other entrepreneurs and, you know, a lot of other people that I, uh, you know, that I could, uh, you know, share, you know, over a beer, you know, our woes. And I found that a lot of folks were giving up, you know, after just one year uh, for whatever reason, They're throwing in the towel, and I didn't want to be one of those folks. I wanted to really take a shot at it. There's not a lot of time in your life where you have an idea and you actually – do something with that idea you create a company you create a product and you start to generate revenue you know i've had tons of ideas you know i'm I'm almost 50 now so over my life i've had all these great ideas which i thought were but never did anything with them and all of a sudden i'm actually doing something and i didn't want that party to end so i worked as hard as i possibly could uh to make sure that uh you know the money never ran out and the party never stopped and that's the. I was able to continue uh, building you know what ended up becoming uh, you know a dream which is starting a company and building it and then ultimately selling it
0: you know it's been fun for me to watch royalty Zone from the sidelines as a customer and a friend it, it's quite an accomplishment that that you have here at Lou
1: yeah thanks I feel uh, you know again good looking back at how I started it and you know I feel you know you always have to have a little bit of luck. Um, but, you know, I think I was in the right place at the right time. There were other companies in the space when I started and, you know, I was able to carve this, this niche out for, for royalty zone. And to the point where now, you know, if someone needs this kind of software, uh, our telephone is going to ring, you know, they know that we're one of the best in the business at providing this. And, you know, we, if someone's looking for licensing automation, they're going to, they're going to call royalty zone.
0: Let me, um, let me shift gears a little and ask a few more personal questions. Okay. So as someone who works for himself, what motivates you to get out of the bed in the morning?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, back, back in the day, it's the motivation is there. Every, you know, I never worked harder or more hours in my life happy, happily than I did in those first three, four years of, of Royalty Zone. There was always something to do. Right, you know, and, and you're working from home, you know, you just kind of have to force yourself to shut the laptop and, and go do something else for a little bit. But there was always something that needed to be done, and it was just fun because everything is new, you know. Every you like, oh, we, we need a contract, oh man, I got to figure out how to, how to make a contract for you know, I so it was just fun. And you know, the motivation was I didn't like I said, I did not want the party to end. I enjoyed being my own boss, I enjoyed having my own company, and I really enjoyed watching this thing grow from something that I just, you know, used to talk about when I'm, you know, hanging out with my buddies to an actual thing that that people were paying, paying money for. And then if you fast forward, then it becomes you're motivated by not letting down, your customers at least for me that that's the biggest motivation if you remember when I talked about my my whole business plan step two is to make the customers ridiculously happy and that's really the culture that I you know I didn't have a huge uh, staff even at the end when I sold the company there was uh, 14 people and like 13 of them were uh, or 12 of them were, were developers and development management but I really tried to instill this company culture of customer first You know, let's uh, really exceed expectations in in delivering and getting implementation done on time and listening to our customers' ideas uh, and, you know, implementing new features as quickly as as possibly and just making the customer feel like they made the right decision. And that's really been my motivation throughout once we got customers, you know, I wanted to keep them, especially Uh, My business model was monthly. I didn't really have a long-term contract. It was monthly recurring revenue. So if someone leaves, they just gave 30-day notice, and that's the end of their revenue, which is terrible for a business like mine. So my big motivation was keeping the customers happy, keeping the revenue predictable so that each year we could increase increase the revenue, and that's how I
0: operated the business. What was the hardest thing you had to do when you were building Royalty Zone?
1: Hmm, Let's think about that. The hardest thing... I think was actually getting the product to the point that it's usable because you hear a lot of talk about MVP and uh, you know uh, sell before you build. But at some point there has to be a product, you know, in our case, in our industry, you know, I would talk to folks and nobody was like, well, let me pay for that now. And then in a year from now, when it's ready, just, you know, give me a call and we'll start using it. Every time I would, Talk to somebody. They're like, that's great. Call me back when when you have a product. So the hardest thing for me was to take this thing from the idea to an actual product. And I remember um, I went on a trip to L.A. to meet with a big agency in L.A., and this was going to be the very first demo I'd ever done. And I, I didn't even have money for a hotel room. I stayed at my cousin's house uh, in their spare bedroom. And I was up. All night. So we were up until like 5 o'clock in the morning, just me and the developer, uh, just to get the thing so that I could do a demo, let alone have someone use it. And we'd already been working on it for like a year at this point. And just to fix all the little things. Uh, to get the thing so that I could sit there and do a live demo um, you know that was that was quite quite an experience so for me the biggest challenge was always on the product side uh, you know as I mentioned I'm i you know my whole career had been in sales so you know it's a natural thing for me to prospect and, and pitch and and navigate a sales cycle it's always been uh, the struggle on the product side
0: conversely what was the Easiest thing you had to do. The
1: easiest thing. Well, <laughs> nothing was extra, you know, extraordinarily easy. But uh, in terms of, again, I think it's just the luxury of being able to to navigate a sales cycle and to know how to ask the right questions and push towards uh, an action, push towards a close. I don't think a lot of companies, startups, have that luxury. Of having someone around that can that can do those types of things. So once I had enough of a product that it was sellable, and I had a handful of references, uh, you know, companies that took the leap uh, and were actually getting value out of the tool, then it became a, a little bit easy. Uh, but still, it, it was a challenge all along. It was always difficult until, you know, even till the bitter end. Um, you know, even concluding the uh the m&a activity there were challenges in that too so there was always challenges at every step of the way but it got a little bit easier uh with time
0: so now you've sold the company Mm -hmm. and you're staying on and serving as a ceo yes so what's next for royalty zone Yeah,
1: we're investing money and uh, hiring uh, new folks. We continue to close deals. We had a great – we're off to a great start in 2018. We finished 2017 strong. Um, There's things we're doing really on two fronts. There's some things – we. it's now an 11-year-old technology product, so it's built some technical debt, and we're we're optimizing and replacing some things that are now got it out of date a little bit and just kind of putting a fresh paint of a coat of paint on it but we're also innovating we're releasing new features we're doing some cool things with licensees now we sell directly to licensees so we continue to have a strong roadmap and we continue to have great suggestions from our customers so when our customers ask for new features we'll either do those as paid development projects or we'll add them to the roadmap so the royalty zone team i we basically operate royalty zone as a division within Filmtrack, and the royalty zone team is focused uh, you know on growing our consumer products, licensing revenue and keeping all of our, now we have something like 50, 60 uh, customers all over the world, keeping them all uh, happy and continuing to enhance and, and build the roadmap.
0: Given your experience, what advice would you offer a startup founder?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say focus on value, um, focus on messaging that highlights your value and, all focus on pick a vertical that you think you have the best chance to succeed. And it might not be the right one, but pick one and go after it and get, get a customer and make that customer ridiculously happy and referenceable and i think that's a good way to get started
0: lou thanks so much for being my guest today it's been a pleasure to talk with you again and to learn a little more about your entrepreneurial journey
1: dave i really appreciate it and I thank you you know in terms of being early adopters like you said you were you were one of them and uh you know i always appreciate uh the role that you played in the success of royalty
0: zone my pleasure lou take care you too Thanks for listening. I'm David Harkins. I'll see you next time. Visit our website at workinglifeproject.com to learn more about the project and sign up for our newsletter. The Working Life Project podcast is produced by me, David Harkins. Mike Harkins wrote our theme music. The Working Life Project podcast is brought to you by David Harkin's Company, a business strategy consultancy working with entrepreneurs and nonprofit organizations.